Hi, my name is Chris Gilbert. I am a total newbie to podcasts, so you'll have to be with me. My stepson, Dean, recently suggested to me that the world could be interested in hearing about our adventures at Warwick's farm. So to kick off, I thought I'd read a book that I wrote several years ago in a series of podcasts, just to see what the interest is. Uh, the book is called Canterbury Tales, with apologies to Geoffrey Chaucer, and is an autobiographical account of the life and times at Warwick's farm, a 15-acre rare-breeds farm on the Canterbury Plains of the South Island of New Zealand, as seen through my eyes. The five-year plan to turn the property into a series rare-breeds conservation farm and farm stay, and live off the property through a variety of income streams from breeding and selling animals to tapping into the tourism and hospitality industry, begins five years earlier than expected due to a job redundancy situation. So begins a rollercoaster ride of the highs and lows of trying to stay afloat while the farm expands into a home for over 40 breeds of animals from over 20 species, as well as a memorable venue for passing travellers to stay. The ride combines the amusing and extraordinary experiences with the animals, along with a host of interesting encounters with guests, at the same time imparting interesting information about some very special rare breed animals. So if you bear with me, I will uh, commence my reading. Canterbury Tales, Chapter 1. Ouch, that smarts. It was a warm, sunny Canterbury day in very early spring. The alpacas were sampling the fresh green tendrils of grass as they pushed upwards towards the sunlight. The view from the upstairs office of our new barn building was particularly splendid that morning. The southern Alps seemed very close, their snow-covered peaks rising majestically up into the bluest of skies. The foothills and valleys and their various shades of deep blues and purples were visible between the line of huge oak and lime trees that lined the roadway. It was truly a lovely day to be made redundant. They'll be here soon, the boys from head office in Australia, to take away the files and computers, the printer, the fax and all my toys, my laptop, my cool cell phone, credit card. My beautiful company car with its metallic burgundy paintwork and cream leather and wood panelling. It had been a stressful few months. The New Zealand subsidiary, subsidiary that I painstakingly bought back from the brink of collapse into substantial profit, had not fared well this last year. A major restructuring had seen me for the last three and a half years working from home. More recently, in our wonderful purpose-built red corrugated steel barn that also served as guest accommodation in a craft studio stroke classroom stroke shop the domain of Elaine, my beautiful and very crafty wife. Operating the wholesale operation remotely from the comfort of home also meant many days and weeks on the road, catching up with the retailers, visiting warehouses, organising advertising campaigns and attending meetings in Australia and conferences further afield. But it had been working well. That was until a change in senior management. The parent company was Japanese-based and the previous two managing directors had been hard taskmasters but fair and we enjoyed mutual respect. They rewarded me well in the good times, but were also supportive in the tougher periods. The fact that I had remarried and moved to the country from the city intrigued them, and when the subsidiary head office started operating from a 15-acre alpaca farm, they were quietly delighted and found excuses to bring visiting executives from Tokyo for a look around. That was until the new Smiley guy arrived. Mr Smiley became a bit of an enigma around the company. He appeared to have little understanding of the business and was constantly seeking advice from Tokyo. That was fine for the Australian operation, but as New Zealand was a very small part of his turnover, he decided he could handle it without assistance. So began the most frustrating 18 months of my business life. Having to stand by as Mr Smiley unravelled all the hard work my team and I had done over the years to build up the business. Stand by, however, was something that I could not do. 
both as a director and as a matter of integrity, and also due to the responsibility I felt for our retailers, who relied on our leading brand for their continued business success. Suffice to say that it was not long before our business and personal relationship deteriorated, particularly with regard to the cultural differences. And at the end of the section, by my refusal to bow in matters of honour, when by doing so it further damaged the company. In other words, I explained to him on many occasions, in the nicest possible way, that he was an idiot and needed to listen to me. And well, you know the outcome. It did give me great delight, though, to know that all the many emails we exchanged that may have been deleted from his computer, I left on mine for the new person to read and enjoy and hopefully share with others. It was a day of many and mixed emotions. A huge weight would be lifted from my shoulders as the huge workload and sense of responsibility for so many people would be cleared. For someone who naturally steered away from confrontation, I wouldn't have to go head-to-head with Mr Smiley anymore, and that would have to be a good thing. My days would now be my own. The stress levels could at last recede as I regrouped for the next chapter of my life. For the last few years, Elaine and I have been planning our future, and that was too when the time was right, young children and finances neatly sorted, we could begin our dream of living off the property, Warwick's farm. The plan was to increase our modest menagerie of a few sheep and our packers, chickens and pigeons, slowly into a rare breed's farm. While doing our bit for conservation, we could at the same time earn an income from the sales of rare bre- animals and fertile eggs, convert our sheep and our packer into fleeces and yarns and scarves and sweaters. The barn would be converted into luxurious but rustic farmstay accommodation and a crafter's meeting place and shop. We would have tours by the coachload of tourists, bringing with them their bulging wallets and purses and become a major tourist destination of international repute. We would become self-sufficient in the freezer full of legs of lamb and slabs of steak and chops and pork roasts. The tunnel house would keep us in vegetables all year round and the orchard would supply us with a harvest of sun-kissed fruit, the surplus of which we could sell at the farmer's markets. The cow would supply us with all the butter, cream and cheese we could eat and I was looking forward to one day pouring thick creamy milk over my breakfast cereal before I tucked into my home-grown bacon and free-range eggs and meadow mushrooms sitting alongside the hothouse tomato. Well, that was the plan, the dream, the goal. And up to a few months ago, we had all the time in the world to ease ourselves comfortably into our new life. Standing in the race alongside the barn, and having finally handed over my Amex card and car keys, I waved to my fully laden ex-colleagues as they slowly drove their way past the paddocks like a funeral cortege. I also waved goodbye to my life as I had known it, and turned towards my new life, and the cottage, and into the comforting arms of Elaine. We decided that our options were limited. I either found another job, which being in my mid-forties and living in rural Canterbury, would not be easy if I was to get a position anywhere close to what I had, or we bought our five-year plan five years ahead. Taking a deep breath, we decided to take the leap. Trust in fate and start living the dream, which sounds all very easy and romantic over a nice bottle of red wine. Our finances had taken a bit of a beating earlier in the year when the local council had insisted that we put in a state-of-the-art, environmentally-friendly septic tank for the barn, which we had not budgeted for, as we had intended to run a line to one of the two septic tanks that over-serviced our cottage. After three months of logically explaining, lobbying and arguing by Elaine, who had taken on the project of resisting the imposition, the council still maintained that unless we spent the $12,000 to put in the system, they would not sign off on the building permit. Their unwavering argument was that the groundwater level in our area was very high and it was imperative we had one. 
You can imagine our mood three months later, when while on holiday we received a call from Bruce, the part owner of the property, who was looking after the kids, explaining that we had no water and our artesian well had run dry. So much for the groundwater level being very high. Two weeks later, and at 42 metres, 28 metres deeper than our previous well, we had water at some outrageous pressure that turned the hole in the ground into something closely resembling a Texas oil well, though not as dark and sticky. The unbudgeted bill of $10,000 was also quite spectacular. Our finances, never particularly healthy with a young family, were not quite in the red, but more on the greyer side of black. A month or so later, I was in the barn in my new office, contemplating the finances and the bills, and how dry our 15 acres were, brown, dusty, and feeling sorry for the alpacas that would need some hay soon to keep them going. My eyes drifted across to the neighbouring dairy farm that resembled a golf course at a country club, so green and lush with the paddocks. The huge irrigator was slowly meandering over the verdant swathe of oasis, one of several irrigators that had been pumping our well dry. I could feel a slight burn as grimacing. My eyes returned to our desert-like farm, and my mind remembered the bills. Dairy farms have been invading the province for years now, taking over arable and sheep farms, removing the shelter belts and converting them into dairy operations. Obviously working in collusion with Satan, they were stealing our water and turning their land into paradise and our land into a dry, thirsty precursor of hell. Taking another gulp of whiskey, I realised that they must also be in collusion with the council, those minions of the devil. Not being of a religious bent, I calmed down and realised that I was, though, becoming a little too stressed with the situation. I decided that as a man who considered he had a bit of a way with words, I would sit down and write a letter to the editor and get it off my chest. That way, little knowing how things can so easily get out of hand. My fairly short but well-crafted letter elegantly made my points. Apart from a reference to the council, the editor decided he better edit, was duly published the following day. It reappeared in the Friday edition of this esteemed broadsheet newspaper as the letter of the week, with the headline above it, and I was rewarded with a flash Parker pen. My stress levels receded. Bear in mind I am still employed at this time. I got it off my chest, and obviously my views were deemed worthy of respect and repetition. I quietly glowed with pride. I could now move on, or so I thought, until I received a phone call from the producer of the country's leading current affairs television programme. He had read my letter while staying with his parents, who had similar frustrations to ours on their country property. He asked if I would agree to be part of a show that was covering World Water Day, and before we knew it, a film crew and a well-respected reporter were on the way to Warwick's farm. It is amazing how much footage goes into making a television programme compared to what survives to go on screen. My several long speeches to camera and reporter and witty anecdotes and advice to the powers that be and to the country in general were whittled down to about six minutes, which included about two minutes of me actually speaking and didn't feature one of my witticisms. It was a fun half-day, though, which ended with us racing around the countryside trying to find a large irrigator to film as our dairy farmer neighbour having been tipped off when the producer rang him to see if he wanted to be interviewed, and was declined, had withdrawn his from sight. Elaine was a little concerned about the effect that my little whisky-infused fit of peak snowball would have on our local, predominantly, dairying community. Fortunately, it was not a major problem, though I must confess to feeling slightly uncomfortable sitting in the local pub among the mutterings and accusatory looks aimed at my direction. <laughs>